You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I can't stop loving you. I've made up my mind to live in memory of the lonesome times. I can't stop wanting you. It's useless to say, so I'll just live my life in dreams of yesterday. Why is this song by Ray Charles so relevant to our topic today? To find out, join us at the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Joseph Frasella. Dr. Frasella is the Director of the Division of Clinical Neuroscience at the National Institute on Drug Abuse in Bethesda, Maryland. Today we are discussing the treatment of addiction. Hello, Dr. Frasella. It's great to have you joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Hi, thanks very much. There are two legal drugs of addiction, alcohol and tobacco. Why can't we just say no? It seems like that doesn't work. Education may not work. I mean, every package of cigarettes says the stuff can kill you. I mean, are people just stupid? No, I think you've hit on one of the issues uh, that is so relevant to the topic is addiction. And it is so hard to stop once one becomes addicted to one of these substances. Has your research on neuroimaging of the brain led to any new and exciting approaches to the prevention and treatment of addiction? I think we're starting to see some very interesting and exciting results that may truly inform our ability to better treat and more target the treatments in particular areas of the brain. In one of the background studies I was looking at, and I don't know if this was tongue-in-cheek, but is there a development of a tobacco vaccine in the process? There is. Interesting you ask. NIDA is supporting studies on a nicotine vaccine. And in fact, it is a vaccine like many other vaccines where the vaccine and antibodies are basically made, and it seems to be fairly effective at helping people quit smoking cigarettes. Is it any phase of trials, like phase one, phase two, phase three at this point, or is it still... I'm not exactly sure what phase it's in, but uh, we're certainly uh, supporting those studies right now. Any other vaccines in development? I believe they're looking at a cocaine vaccine also. I assume that the tobacco companies are not supporting this research? These are supported by the NIH. Most of us remember our first love, even though many years have passed. Is memory indelible? I've seen ex-smokers get pleasure from just smelling the smoke. How do you deal with this when you're treating an addict? Well, that really points to one of the very difficult parts is the cues that we have in the world. And particularly for smokers, there are cues all over the place. And, and as well, there are many places that advertise cigarettes. There are uh, people who are smoking as well as availability of cigarettes is there's ample access to to cigarettes. So yes, in fact, the difficulty is when one wants to quit, there are all these cues and memories that are then triggered by stimuli in, in our environment. And so it makes it particularly difficult to avoid these and not have cravings for the, the substance. Is there any way to extinguish the memory? Well, there are behavioral treatments now that work with people to help them deal with some of these cravings. And so how do you deal with these intense states of drive where you just will give up all of the hard work you've done to then go and have that one cigarette? And so we do work with people. Of course, there are pharmacotherapies like the patch that help some people, and there are other medications that help people. But the other side of it is there are some very strong cognitive components, these cues that are, are 
uh, driving cravings that we have to help people deal with. And so we have some behavioral treatments that really seem to target some of those cravings. I saw, and correct me if I'm pronouncing her name incorrectly, but Dr. Volko, who is the director of your institute, talked about helping the addict to learn a new form of conditioning, one that allows the brain's cognitive power to shout down the craving, to suppress the amygdala and other lower regions. What does she mean by that, and what kind of conditioning is being done? Well, there are some very interesting studies now being done. There is a a group out in California looking at real-time functional magnetic resonance imaging, and they're looking primarily for pain patients and these are patients who are not responsive to medications uh, and, and other therapies. And so what they have people doing in an MRI scanner is they are training them to increase or decrease particular areas of the brain that seem to affect pain. And they've had some really interesting success with some patients, some individuals who are able to, in fact, use their real-time imaging, so they, they see activity in their brain on a screen as they're, in a sense, like a biofeedback, and they can turn on or turn off certain areas of their brain, um, or not turn them on or turn them off, but effectively turn them up or turn them down to dampen uh, these areas. And so the question for us then in, in drug abuse is, can you do the same thing to turn on or turn off cravings? And certainly stimuli turn on cravings, but if we can give people some way of being able to control these cravings when they're out in the real world, when they are going to be exposed to the advertisements or walking past someone who's smoking a cigarette, that could be really quite beneficial for many many people. Pharmacologically, are there any drugs of choice or things that we've learned what works and what doesn't? In terms of treating drug abuse? Yes. Certainly, we have a number of medications out there that are effective. Methadone, for example, has helped many, many heroin abusers. Uh, We have a whole division that's devoted here at NIDA to developing new treatments for drug abuse. Again, we talked about the nicotine and the cocaine vaccines. Uh, There are certainly medications that are being tested every day to try to figure out ways of, of um, stopping the addictions and helping with curing people and getting them off of drugs. What have you learned from your patients? I think what we're learning is how difficult it is because there are so many factors in addiction. As I mentioned, there are biological, there are psychological, um, behavioral aspects, and, and you can't just treat one part not like we're going to find the specific area of the brain and target that with a medication and turn it on or turn it off. It's, it's really a network of systems that's involved in addiction. And the challenge for us is to really figure out ways that we can affect and change multiple systems. What role does stress play in addiction and in treating addiction? Well, we certainly know that stress is something that is a risk factor for addiction. Uh, one other factor about addiction is it is a a chronic and relapsing disease. And so we are showing with studies that stress, in fact, drives people back even if they want to quit. It's a potent stimulus that brings people back into abusing drugs and and, uh, continuing the cycle of addiction. Earlier, you were talking about the functional MRI studies and 
patients learning to control areas of their brain. Are any of the complementary therapies, such as hypnosis, meditation, of any value? Also, acupuncture. Michael Smith, who I believe is at Einstein in New York, has used auricular acupuncture as part of heroin withdrawals. Have you seen any correlates there or successes in those areas? Yes, we're certainly interested in all types of treatments. And some people will respond better to a pharmacotherapy. Other, tre- other people will respond better to behavioral therapies or combinations or uh, alternative. Acupuncture seems to work in a certain population. So, yes, we're very, very interested in, in all different types of approaches to treating this very difficult disease. A discussion of the treatment of addiction wouldn't be complete without mentioning Alcoholics Anonymous. What's their success rate and what works best in that sort of situation? I think uh, I'm, not a, I'm not exactly sure what their success rate is, but there are a number of people who certainly respond to that approach. And so my feeling is if it works, that's great. I, I think there are a number of approaches and... Uh, AA certainly helps thousands and thousands of people. Is abstinence necessary for rehabilitation to work? Complete abstinence. That's a very interesting question. Um, We know that addiction is a disease that is characterized by relapse. And so to say that it's a failure if you relapse, I think, is too high a standard. We have to understand that it is relapsing. And so Complete abstinence may not be certainly the gold standard. We would like everyone to be 100% abstinent, but the reality is, and clinically, uh, abs- complete abstinence is a very difficult uh, threshold to meet. Can imaging of the brain predict which treatment is best, which one is the greatest likelihood for success, and a pattern that might indicate the likelihood of recurrence? Well, that's that's a really good question, and we have some data now, some studies have shown that we can use certain behavioral tasks to predict relapse very effectively. There's a group out in California, Martin Paulus, who has some very intriguing data on methamphetamine abusers, and he gave them a behavioral task, and based on their performance on the task, could predict 80 to 85% of those who would relapse or not. So certainly some of these areas where we're blending brain imaging and and cognitive neuroscience uh, to uh, inform treatment hold tremendous promise. When Dr. Paulus detects this likelihood of relapse, have they developed interventions that strengthen the patient's abstinence, their ability to withstand the drugs? That's the next step, certainly. Not there yet, though. So you don't just cuff them upside the head. Right, exactly. Doesn't usually work. For the Just Say No programs, I mean, why has education been so bad at preventing drug use? Well, education is actually very good. I think if you take smoking, for example, and you compare smoking rates in the 60s to smoking rates in the 80s and 90s and, and now, we see that education has, in fact, worked. And so education is good. Sometimes we need to change our messages. And the real key is how do you target your message? There are lots of individual differences. So prevention messages for adults may not work for adolescents. Certainly, one would think that their brains are so different that they probably won't work. 
I think we need as an institute to figure out better uh, in terms of what works, and we're working toward figuring that out. Again, we're trying to use brain imaging studies to, to help us inform prevention messaging. What frustrates you the most in treating addiction? You know, what, what makes you want to just pull your hair out? Well, I think one of the big frustrations is that it's, it's not a single type of disease, and there are so many individual differences, and so what works for some doesn't work for others, and that is a challenge for us. I want to thank Dr. Joseph Frischella, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing the treatment of addiction. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. I wish you good day and good health.